to church. Everyone here joining us in person in Mesa and everyone joining us online. So grateful that you're here tonight. Did you know that next week is Easter? Easter at Generation Church is going to be amazing. We didn't get to have Easter in person last year because of a little thing called a pandemic. So I think that this year we need to celebrate times two. So I want to encourage you to invite your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, anybody that you can think of. There's invite cards on your seat, and if you're joining us online, you can send the link to somebody. But you never know a simple invitation really could change somebody's life for eternity. And the truth is, a lot of the times when people are invited to church, they'll say yes. They're just waiting for somebody to invite them. So be open this week to who God is bringing to your mind. And take a step of faith and invite them to church on Easter Sunday. And if I'm being honest with you, Easter is one of my favorite days of the entire year. I mean, leading up to Easter, I really feel like a little kid that gets to go to Disneyland soon. I can just feel the anticipation building in my soul. Because it's the day that we celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus. But the truth is that there's really no Christianity without the resurrection, right? So Easter is kind of a big deal to us. But we cannot celebrate the resurrection of Jesus without understanding the death of Jesus. Without understanding the power of the cross. Because his resurrection, it promises us eternity. But his death promises us forgiveness. His resurrection proves that Jesus was God, but his death proves that God loves you. His resurrection gives us victory, but it's his death that gives us freedom. So tonight we're going to talk about the death of Jesus. We're going to talk about the cross. The title of my sermon tonight, if you're taking notes, is Jesus, the Suffering Servant. I think it's easy for us today, as Christians in the world that we live in, to think of the cross as a symbol of our faith, right? As Christians, we have the t-shirt, the cross t-shirt. We hang crosses on our walls, in our houses. We wear necklaces with the cross on it. Some of us even get tattoos with the cross, it can almost become commonplace, the cross. But it has to be so much more than that to us. Because the cross is everything. The cross is everything. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it as the very power of God. In this scripture verse, the Apostle Paul is really breaking humankind down into two different categories. The first group, those who don't believe. To them, the cross of Christ is foolish. This Greek word for foolish 
It's Maria. It's where we get the word moron. (laughs) So in simple terms, Paul is saying that to the unsaved world, those who preach the gospel look like idiots. It's true. They think that we are foolish, but we know the truth. Am I right? Because there's another category of people that Paul is pointing out in this scripture. The second group, those who do believe, those who are being saved because of their faith in Christ. We know that the cross is what God used to display his power over sin for all time. And those who trust in Jesus, they understand that without this powerful act, without the cross, we would be completely lost and hopeless. We know that Jesus had to die. We know that it's always been a part of God's plan. It was his whole purpose for coming to the earth. C.S. Lewis said it like this, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus, he gave his life in a brutal, humiliating, and excruciating way. We can read about it in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe, They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. After crucifying him, they divided him, his clothes, by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was a terrible, tragic, horrific experience for Jesus. But we have to understand what this means for us. What does Jesus' death on the cross mean for us? Jesus gave up his glory and endured incredible suffering, and because of this, we gain everything. But why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Tonight we're gonna talk about Four reasons why Jesus would do this. Jesus died on the cross so that, number one, we would know he is the Messiah. This word Messiah, it it means the anointed one or the chosen one. And before Jesus came to earth, God's people had been waiting for their Messiah the chosen one to be their savior since the very beginning. I'm talking like the very beginning, like Adam and Eve beginning. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, there was an instant separation between God and man, 
and we were instantly in need of a savior. God promised in Genesis 3 that he would send a savior and the promise of the Messiah is woven throughout the entire Old Testament. So when Jesus comes, when he's finally here, the Jewish people would have read and known all the Old Testament prophecies that promised God would send a deliverer to save his people. They were waiting and waiting and waiting for him for a very long time. They were longing for him. And finally, here he was, Jesus, the Messiah on earth. But how were they supposed to know that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, it's not like he was born wearing a t-shirt that says, I am the Messiah. But he did make it pretty clear. First, Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah. When he was speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, it says the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I mean, it doesn't get much more clear than that, does it? Jesus claimed he was the Messiah, but even more than that, Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And when I say all of them, there was a lot of them. There are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. That's a lot of prophecies. Just to name a few, in Isaiah 7, it said a virgin will give birth to him and he will be called Emmanuel. In Micah 5, it says that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 9, it says that his ministry would begin in Galilee. In Psalm 22, it says the Savior's hands and feet would be pierced. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. And what about Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now, if I were to take the reference away from this scripture verse, if you didn't know it was in the book of Isaiah, you would think that this was written after Jesus died on the cross in the New Testament. But it was written 700 years before Jesus died on the cross. Many Jewish people, they missed the connection between the prophecies of the Old Testament and Jesus. They read how the Messiah would overcome God's enemies, and they thought this meant that he'd deliver them from the Romans. But God had a much bigger plan than saving the Jews from the Romans. God was going to use the Messiah to save mankind from sin once and for all. And sadly, 
Jewish people are still looking for their Messiah. They're so blind to the truth, and they choose not to see it. In Jewish synagogues today, they have a reading plan through the Old Testament that they read through in every Jewish synagogue across the world throughout the year. They skip Isaiah 53. They don't even read it. It's called the forbidden chapter in Jewish culture. I'm so grateful that there are no hidden chapters of the Bible in Christianity. There's no secrets that people are hiding from us and nothing has ever been changed. Christianity is the only religion where the more you know, the more you dig, the more you ask, the more confident you can be in the truth. Unlike Mormonism, which is based completely on false teaching and feelings. The Book of Mormon was written in 1830, and since then there have been 3,913 changes to the Book of Mormon. That's a lot of changes. They justify this by the religious leader at the time, they call him the prophet, They have a feeling that it's the right thing to do. They call it a burning in their bosom. I'm I'm not making that up. That's what they call it. And I just want to ask them, like, how do you know the difference between a burning in your bosom and heartburn? (laughs) But in our Bible, in the Christian Bible, today... We're reading the same truths that were written thousands of years ago. And every time archaeologists find a new manuscript, guess what? It says the same exact thing as all the other manuscripts that have been found throughout history. But even beyond that, every detail in the Bible is meticulous and on purpose and confirms that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. He was and is the Messiah. In John 19, it says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. This is another prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it would be easy to read this passage of scripture and just casually pass by the mention of a hyssop branch. It's easy to just think that it's a random mention of a plant, but we're talking about the Bible. So this directs us to Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus, it tells us that the hyssop branch was used by the Israelites during Passover. Look, drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames of your houses. 
The blood of a lamb on the doorpost saved the Israelites from the death of the firstborn. Can you see the direct connection here? The small detail of a hyssop branch during the crucifixion of Jesus would have been a clear connection to the Jewish people. And just as the hyssop branch was used in the first Passover to save the firstborn, during the death of Jesus, they see the ultimate sacrifice of God's firstborn to provide them with salvation. And the evidence doesn't even stop there. Let's remember that every year after the first Passover, they would celebrate what God had, did for, God had done for them through a Passover meal. And they sacrificed a lamb to remember what God had done for them. And when Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist said this in John 1. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Messiah. There are so many connections between the Old Testament and Jesus. You cannot deny that Jesus was who he said he was. The cross is not just a symbol of death, but a symbol of confirmation that Jesus was the appointed sacrifice given by God to take away the sins of the world. Second, Jesus died on the cross so that our debt could be wiped away. If you've ever been in debt, you know how stressful it can be. Before Pastor Ryan and I got married, I had a little bit of student loans. I had a lot. I had a lot of student loans. And if I'm just being honest, I went through a season where I couldn't really pay them. And so I got behind. And the people who collect student loans, if you don't pay them, they're like vultures. They start calling you like 4,000 times a day. Owing money, especially when you have no idea how you're going to repay it, is terrifying. It's stressful. But tonight we need to understand that every person has a spiritual debt. And it's a debt that we could never repay. The Bible says all people sin. All people sin. And it results in spiritual debt. And this is a way bigger deal than any amount of financial debt because spiritual debt separates us from God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Other translations of the Bible say the penalty of sin is death, the price of sin, the punishment of sin. But I like the word wages. I like the word wages because it implies that it's what someone has earned and also what they deserve. Think of a criminal, right? A criminal charged with many crimes with so much evidence that they're guilty. If someone commits a crime against you, you want them to pay. It reminds me of when our house was broken into three times in one week. We don't live there anymore. 
furious. I wanted them to be caught. I wanted them to pay for what they had done to me. The first time they broke into my house, they stole my hair straightener. And then I bought another one, and they stole it again the third time. After they broke into our house the first time, we filled out the police report and made the whole list of everything they had stolen. And the second time, they stole the paper of everything that we had written down. It was crazy. And I wanted them to pay. The same expectation applies to our sin. We've all sinned. And there's so much evidence that we're guilty. And the truth is, sin must be punished. God cannot forgive sins without the debt being paid because God is holy and God is just. So he has to punish sin. There is no option for forgiveness without death because the wages of sin is death. So someone had to pay the price. Someone had to die. And that someone was going to be you. But Jesus stepped in. Jesus, he stepped in. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice so that we can experience forgiveness. We couldn't earn it. We certainly do not deserve it. It's just simply a free gift. It's the whole reason why Jesus came to earth. It's why he stepped off his throne in heaven and became human so that he could carry your sin to the cross. John 19, 30. Jesus said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What did Jesus mean when he said this? He meant that the work that he had come to do was finished. He meant that the atonement for the sins of the world was complete. This line right here, it is finished. This word finished in the original Greek literally means to pay. And this term, it is finished, it was a common phrase used in Jesus' day by bankers that meant paid in full. Paid in full. The work was complete. Your sins can never be punished again because Jesus already paid the price. And then look, he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. He voluntarily died for you. He experienced incredible pain. He bore your sins. He took your punishment. He experienced your hell so you would not have to. Amen. But I want you to really think about this. Even though 
while Jesus walked the earth, he was fully man, he was still fully God. So he could have stopped this at any point. He could have changed his mind. He could have said, no, I'm good. He could have called the angels in heaven to come and intervene. But Jesus refused to save himself so he could save you. Because Jesus saved you, because he paid your debt, you're no longer indebted to God. And because you don't owe God your life, you can freely give it to him. Third, Jesus died on the cross so that our shame could be removed from us. We've all experienced embarrassment and shame because of something we've done wrong. Am I right? The definition of shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable. All sin results in shame because all sin is dishonoring to God. Ezra 9, 6. My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Can you relate? Have you ever had this feeling, the guilt, the shame? Have you ever said, I can't believe I did that? Been incredibly embarrassed of your past decisions or feel the weight of your mistakes? And we worry, what will people think of me? Because we're full of shame. And people do crazy things when they're trying to get rid of their shame. I read an article about how people try to get rid of their guilt and their shame. And did you know that there's a whole group of people that when they're feeling guilty, when they're feeling shameful, they go out into their backyard and they dig a hole and then they lay on the ground and they yell why they're feeling shameful into the ground and then they bury it. That's crazy. <laughs> like, what do you think the ground is going to do for you? That pile of dirt. It doesn't make any sense. But people will do anything to make the shame go away. We try to hide it. We try to cover it up. We might turn to substances to make the feelings go away. But there is only one way to get rid of shame, and it's giving it to Jesus. Amen. He died on the cross to set you free from shame. Colossians 2.14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Because of the cross, our shame can be removed. Because of the cross, our shame is gone forever. It's canceled. This is the only kind of cancel culture that I can support. So if you're feeling shame in your life on a regular basis, you are not experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ the way God intended you to. Because you know the truth, and the truth sets you free. 
And Jesus brings freedom from sin and all of its effects. And that includes your shame. So if you are feeling shame from your past, you are carrying something that does not belong to you anymore. People might bring up your past or try to use your past mistakes against you. And the devil certainly will, but God never does. Romans 8.1, we have the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, real quick, what's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Because they're not the same thing. Condemnation comes from the devil and makes us want to hide from God. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and calls us to return to God. Condemnation sounds like accusation, and conviction calls you to restoration. So how how is this possible? How is it possible that we can have no condemnation? It's because Jesus wore your condemnation on his shoulders on the way to the cross. Even though Jesus had nothing to be ashamed of, he faced the humiliation that we deserve. He deserved honor, but he was dishonored. He deserved praise, but he was mocked. He deserved adoration, but was humiliated. And because Jesus did this for you, you can walk with your head held high. You can walk in freedom. You can walk confidently and filled with joy into God's presence. Because there's only one thing that God ever forgets, and that's your sin. There's only one thing that God ever forgets, and it's your sin. So anytime you feel shame, that is from the devil. Because we know that if we confess our sin... God is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The fourth and final reason that we're going to talk about tonight, why Jesus died on the cross, is so that we would know how much God loves us. It's an incredible feeling when you know someone loves you, isn't it? I mean, it just feels good in your soul. I was pretty confident that Ryan loved me when we got married. But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was true when he went to Disneyland with me. God's love for us is not an abstract concept, and it's not just a theory. He proved his love for us on the cross. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Look, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now, what I'm getting ready to say is admittedly brutal, but you cannot understand the love of God without understanding the death of God's son. So let me tell you about the death of Jesus. 
Crucifixion was one of the most brutal ways to die in all of history. It was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans for the purpose of causing the most pain for the longest time. It was so vile that Romans wouldn't say the word in public gatherings. Crucifixion was intended to humiliate you. It would be like if someone grabbed you, stripped you naked, and dropped you off in the parking lot of Walmart. And before they would crucify you, they would beat you with a cat o' nine tails. And when they whipped you, it would rip the flesh off your back so deep that it left the rib cage exposed. And this alone was so painful and so violent that it could kill you. They dug a crown of thorns into his head. They didn't place it gently. They dug it into his head. People spit on Jesus. They hit him. They hurled insults at him on the way to the cross. The Roman execution squad would purposefully place the nails through nerve bunches in the wrists and the ankles. But they didn't want to hit any major arteries that would give the victim the luxury of bleeding out quickly. And after enduring all of this pain, all of this suffering, nails through his hands and his feet, Jesus, the Son of God, hung on that cross for six hours before he died. Scholars believe that the cause of Jesus' death was a cardiac rupture. This means that his heart would have burst. I heard a doctor say it like this one time. When you said Jesus died of cardiac rupture, let me give you what this means in layman terms. Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart was broken for you. His heart was broken for me. His heart was broken for every person that ever walked this earth. Jesus, our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, covered in blood and beaten, a crown of thorns on his head, his face bruised beyond recognition, nails driven through his hands and his feet, carrying the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, taking your punishment, taking your place. Why? Because he loves you. Amen. Simply because he loves you. The value of something is determined by how much you're willing to pay for it. Jesus was willing to pay the highest price possible for you. 
And because of this ultimate act of love, we can be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We can be restored. And you can never doubt that God loves you because he already proved it to you on the cross. Romans 5, 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Church, friends, let us never, let us never lose sight of the power of the cross and what it means for us because Jesus came and died on the cross we know that he's the Messiah our debt can be paid and we can be forgiven our guilt and our shame is gone forever all because God loves you So how do we respond to the cross? How do you respond to the cross? Gratitude? Aren't you so grateful for what Jesus did for you? We respond to the cross with love for God. We respond to the cross with surrender and obedience What do you do with the cross?